Hello, fellow wanderers in the fourth dimension, and welcome to the greatest show in the galaxy. I am she who is known throughout the galaxy as Emma Hyam. Joining me is my cohort in evil, nice Mr. Michael Mould. How are you, sir? <laughs> I'm fine. <laughs> and today we are talking... Oh, shut up. And today we are talking about a very special episode. An episode mm. you should see, in fact, stealing from our glorious benefactors at the Simply Syndicated Network. The Pyramids of Mars. Oh. Possibly one of the greatest stories of all time. Did I? I certainly feel that way. Does Mr. Michael Mould? Only time will tell. Oh, I think it's safe to say that uh, I like this one a lot. I think it's probably, in fact, I, I'll, I'll say it right here. Out of all of Tom Baker's stories, this is probably my favourite. Okay. Even Big statement right off the bat. Even above Genesis of the Daleks, which is mm. bloody awesome. Yeah. It's, it's it's definitely up there, isn't it? Oh, yeah. If, if it, we did like a, a top ten overall favourite stories, this would be well above five. Oh, God, yeah. I, yeah. I, I would think so, most definitely. Well, really, we sh- let's begin at the beginning. So mm. why did we pick Pyramids of Mars to begin with? I think that's a good place to start. Why would we, out of all the pantheon of uh, of who, why would we say, let's talk about Pyramids of Mars as our first classic retrospective? I think this is sort of like a distillation of all the great stuff about Doctor Who. I mean, this was... It was made in the nineteen seventy five. It was first broadcast. So this was the height of Doctor Who's popularity. I mean, the four episodes pulled in about nine ten million viewers apiece, and it it was just it was Tom Baker, it was Elizabeth Slade, it was Philip Hinchcliffe as the uh, producer, Paddy Russell directing, and the story is credited to Stephen Harris, but uh, that's actually a pseudonym. It was originally written by a fellow called Louis Griefer. <laughs> But due to an illness, he wasn't able to complete the four episodes as he had it in his mind. So ultimately, it was Robert Holmes, who was the script editor at the time, who turned it into the story that we get today. And you really do get to see that. And it's it's at the time during season 13, there was... Well, let's be honest, uh, Doctor Who was sort of like stealing ideas from all sorts of like science fiction genres. So... This has like a lot of roots in like the Hammer Horror film series. You get that with like the architecture and the characterization, and it's it's basically the the Doctor Who version of Hammer Horror's uh, The Mummy. So yeah, it's it's just sort of like a perfect storm, really, of like the the greatness of Doctor Who. I'll say I think you could we can both agree that this story probably represents the height of Tom Baker and Liz Layden's powers oh, as as a as a as a duo. Mm. Really, you you'd be hard pushed to think of an episode maybe that they're actually better in. Their chemistry is incredible in this episode. Oh yeah. Um the way they bounce off each other is it, it, such a joy to watch. Mm-hmm. And also you've got like a, the supporting cast, you've got uh, Michael Sheard uh who's actually been in Doctor Who more times than I actually thought. I only thought he'd been in like Yeah. Three or two or three times, he's actually been in quite a bit, and mm. yeah, you got Bernard Archer as uh, the other uh, Scar and the one who gets taken over by by Sutek, and he's really sort of cold and just the, the makeup on him just brilliant. He looks cadaverous, and of course you've he got does. you've got uh, Gabriel Wolf, who I have to be honest, I always have a bit of a man crush on him for his wonderful <laughs> voice. Oh my yeah, God, incredible, isn't it? Mm. I mean, well, um, uh, new viewers, maybe you haven't checked this episode out. We'll know him as the voice of the Satan entity in the Impossible Planet slash Satan Pit. Mm. Yeah, I, honestly, when I remember watching that for the first time, and you know, the beast started talking, it was like, <gasps> <gasps> Toby. 
Yeah. So, yeah, it's like, oh my God, that's awesome. So obviously, at least Russell T. Davis remembered him. You know, he just wasn't like a bit part. And he's done, and Gable Wolf's also done um, a couple of uh, big finishes, I think. He, uh, yeah. I think he was in Thicker Than Water, and he also he also reprised the role of Sutek in uh, the Faction Paradox spinoffs. And he just sort of like, he, it's just like a, just a constant sort of tone of tranquil, malevolent fury. Of course, obviously, mm. he gets to go a little bit crazy once, uh, you know, Sutex get, gets freed, spoiler. Yeah. Um, but... Oh, yeah, we should probably say here that um, we're going to probably extensively spoil this episode. So mm. if you're somebody who maybe isn't as familiar with the classic series, wants to fully enjoy this episode that we're going to put out, you know, go away, watch it, we'll wait. Yeah, go on. Right, now come back, now come back, now you can listen to the rest of it. Right, let's carry on. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, what's the basic story of Pyramids of Mars? The basic story of Pyramids of Mars is that um, it, it begins in Egypt in 1911. We are excavating a pyramid. We go into a burial chamber. We see that the Eye of Horus is inscribed upon it. Um, as as always happens in these um, these things, uh, the Egyptian assistants leg it because they know what's up, and it leaves poor old Professor Professor Scarman to um, enter the chamber alone, and he is blasted by a ray. Um, we <laughs> <laughs> and that, as openings go, I, I mean, it's one of those things of it. It seems so uh, tropey, um, mm. like these all these stories kind of start this way. But it's sort of that thing of is it this is the one that originated it, and everything you've seen is influenced that, and you think, well, this one is just copying everything that has come hence. Mm. Um, but no, I think that this one is kind of it's kind of the thing that originated. Well, not maybe this episode, but like you say, through through Hammer as well, is kind of nailing these tropes onto the wall. Yeah, it's it's very much sort of like a love letter towards like the Hammer horror films and things like that, because it, that it's always at least one part of any sort of like story involving uh, mummies and you know supernatural goings on. Then you, of course, you go into the TARDIS, as is yeah, uh, required. And- and, yes, uh, and I'll say that, that um, this this uh, image of uh, the fourth Doctor kind of standing in the middle of the thing and slowly looking up mm. is maybe one of the iconic images of, of Doctor Who. Mm. Um, it, you see it over and over and over again in like compilation clips and TV bits and all this sort of thing. It's one of those, it's always that that little image, I don't know why. Mm. And um, we get him interacting with um, Sarah J. Smith and I love this little sequence of her <laughs> coming in with uh, uh, what was allegedly one of Victoria's dresses on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's, he's a bit moody in this scene, isn't he, the fourth Doctor? He is, yes, uh, in eternity. Mm-hmm. And it, it's just great how um, Elizabeth Slater, I mean, she, that was made up. She she improvised that bit where she pulls the shawl over her head and she goes, oh, I know you're a time lord. She's sort of like... She's, <laughs> it was, what's great about Sarah Jane, she would, she would always, like, take the mick out of the doctor a bit you know she wasn't like worshipping his every footstep yes no, she is... always uh, she always knew how to kind of bring him down a peg and mm. um, stopping kind of being such a kind of such an introvert but I mean this one um, in this story as we see as it goes on the doctor is acutely aware of his uh, sort of time lord duties as mm. it were that it's kind of his duty to stop Sutek as, as much as it is um, to save Earth, he's looking at the big picture. Yeah, that's like he says to um, Scarman, uh, the 
the uh, Michael Shade character. He says, uh, somebody's interfering in time and time is my business. It's just, exactly. It's, that's, that's one of the... Actually, one of, so like one, one of the more forgotten lines from this story, which there there's a lot of lines from this story that sort of get remembered. Um, but I, yes, I it's like a extremely quotable story. Mm-hmm. So obviously, then you get uh, a bit of trouble in TARDIS. Uh, trouble up, no, in aye, trouble aye, up, Bill. Right, because Sutex influence you know busts up the TARDIS a little bit, and Sarah sees a projection of uh, of a jackal face. Which is actually quite good. I mean, it's 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 actually genuinely scary. Mm. It's really weird looking, and um, it's actually for us continuity nerds. It represents the first time the TARDIS is penetrated by an evil force, <laughs> you know, in flight as well. I mean, because uh, the TARDIS is meant to be covered by this thing called temporal grace. You can't. Uh, shoot weapons. You can't, basically it's like a peace force field. So mm. for it to be broken kind of represents a sort of a, a precedent setting event. Yeah. I always kind of call foul with the temporal grace thing because Yeah, it's convenient <laughs> it basically it works when you need it to work and it doesn't when it doesn't. You know, mm. it's um it's one of those kind of unobtainium level kind of fluffs that you uh you can employ when it's convenient. Mm-hmm. So they put down uh, back where they were hoping to get, but it's uh back in nineteen eleven, which is uh a this, bit early, even for yeah. the break. Yeah, so they're trying to get to Unit HQ, mm-hmm. which they do, but at the wrong time. Yeah, it's when it's still owned by the Scarmans. Yes. Uh, and in real life, owned by Mick Jagger, fun mm-hmm. fact. Stargrove, yes. yes. Uh, I think he'd only just bought it at the time when they made uh, Pyramids of Mars. Yes, local boy, come yep. on the Rolling Stones. <laughs> so anyway, in, in the house you have uh, this... Sort of mysterious Egyptian fella, by the name of I Ibrahim Namib. I love this guy. Mm-hmm. I love this guy. I just it's all the kind of you know hammering on the um, the organ and mm-hmm. it's so over the top gothy, but I love it. And the um, you know the servant of Sutek, he needs no other, and all this mm-hmm. stuff. It's um, it's so fabulous. Um, it's I think you can read it as kind of being a bit OTT and cheesy, but mm-hmm. I think. At this point, because the Doctor is so concerned by what's happening, because Tom Baker is um, so portrays it so well mm-hmm. that this is something frightening and this is serious stuff, mm-hmm. um, you just entirely go with it. And you can't help but when you're sort of approaching, I mean, he just seems so frightening, even though he's just a little bloke in affairs, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, so... The Doctor and Sarah uh, interrupt a confrontation uh, between Amin and uh, Doctor Warlock, a friend of uh, Professor Scarman, who's obviously at this point still missing, but we don't know his ultimate fate. Uh, so they escape into the the woods and uh, they get pursued by mummies, which is fun. I love the mummies. They yeah, are... I love the yeah. They, I love that. I think we have to talk about the fate of the poor old poacher in the woods. <laughs> is that is when that... we get up to it? But uh, yeah, the the design of the movies it's very it's almost it's again it's very sort of like hammer horror 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 yes yes and you know so they they lumber around they're just sort of dumb sort of machines as we find out so the Doctor and Sarah and Warlock managed to make it uh, to the lodge on the ground so used by uh, Lawrence Scarman as played by Michael Sheard who's uh, it's, it's quite kind of like a He's sort of the more schoolboyish 
of the two Scarvin brothers, really, because yes. uh, he's very sort of giddy about uh, his little, little Marconi scope, uh, which is sort of like a primitive uh, radio telescope, which has been aiming at Mars to try and see if there's, you know, little green men on there, and uh, he tends to find out more than he uh, bargained for. Yeah, but the, it's the very definition of biting off more than you can chew, bless his heart. Mm-hmm. I do love um, Michael... Michael Sheard is one of those actors that's so incredibly watchable, and yeah. you... You always went, like you say, you're playing the kind of this schoolboyish version of himself. Mm-hmm. He's so lovely, and when when think bad things happen to him, and they do, it just breaks your heart because you yeah. think, oh, his little fa- I can't. No, it's awful. You just want to kind of give him a hug and a cup of tea and take him away from it. Yeah, he's, um, he's pretty woobyish, really, isn't he? He's sort of... He is quite woobyish. You're quite right there. Um, anyone who's sort of a bit. This will play contrary to this, but uh, Michael Sheard is most famous for playing Hitler. He sort of made a sort of a, a cottage industry in playing Hitler. Um, mm. Most people will know if, if you don't know him, you will know him from Indiana Jones: The Last Crusade. Mm. He plays Hitler and signs in his book. Yes, he's only sort of blinking, you miss it thing, but that's Michael Sheard for anyone who doesn't know. Yeah, um, a lot of uh, our English listeners who sort of maybe of the same age we are will probably know him best for his role in Grange Hill as the headmaster. Yes. Yes, that's probably as, his most yeah. iconic television role. Yeah, so they get the signal from Mars and uh, the Doctor manages to decode it as uh, being a, a warning, so beware Sutek. Um, mm. So let's let's talk a bit about Sutek. I think that with with these sort of this is another a big Doctor Who trope, but um mm. I don't really know of any other Again, apart from sort of the more gothy kind of later 70s sort of sci-fi and fantasy shows, the whole trope of the ancient aliens, chariots of the gods, kind of um, uh, ancient aliens influencing human behaviour, is actually, Sutek, is from a race called the Osirens. Mm -hmm. um and is pursued by his brother horus uh you if you have any familiarity with egyptian myth and legend you're going to know those names so it's one of those old tropes um that who does very well of everything that we thought we knew as being uh just a, a religion that spontaneously came about was actually influenced by a greater being and really that was the sort of thing that was, cap- was sort of capturing the zeitgeist of what was happening in the seventies, because mm. the whole age of Aquarius and uh, I say I think the publishing of the original Chariots of the Gods was either not far off or had just happened. So it really, it's bringing uh, that idea into kind of a gothic, a gothic setup. Uh, yeah, um, say it um, also plays off those things that in um, the early. 1900s this this uh hangover from victorian things of like the obsession with death and mm. um the whole kind of these new technologies and trying to look out into the solar system as opposed to being more earthbound mm. so it's bringing all of those interests and all those ideas into kind of one into one uh, story yeah um so obviously they uh managed to infiltrate the house again uh and Nameen. They're in and out of this house like yeah. it's like it's a sieve, really. Every oh yeah, you know, Namin should really before he got uh, frazzled, really should have been uh, closing some windows. Yeah, at least locking the doors. <laughs> yes, <laughs> the lodestone, which is the uh, disguise of the sarcophagus, which brought the TARDIS here in the first place, is actually a portal to a space-time tunnel, uh, during which a servant of Sutek appears 
and uh, pretty much off Namine. <laughs> and that's the end of the episode. Yeah. We're by, by the traditional shoulder frazzle mm. manoeuvre. Yeah. Um, he, he was doing before the Cybermen made it cool. Yes, I, say, I was going to say the baddies in Doctor Who are very, very um, keen on uh, death by squeezing shoulders. Um, mm. That's I think it's because it's not quite throttling somebody. Yeah. Um, it's close enough, so that's that's kind of so we don't get in trouble with Mary Whitehouse. Yeah, imitatable behaviour, I think, is uh, yes. Yeah, I mean the uh, so the the amount of like detail that's in this uh, with the sets for the uh, the priory, it's just it's just gorgeous looking. I oh, mean, it looks so beautiful. Yeah, I mean, there's the usual sort of like Doctor Who of the of that time sort of things when you know Namine lifts the uh, the. The front of the sarcophagus to reveal the mummy beneath. You know, obviously it's made of like polystyrene or something, but it's like he's he's made it really trying to make it look like it's heavy, but um, yes, old heavy acting. Yeah, it doesn't quite work, but um, mm. I say, I mean, that's the, that's an old thing that yeah I've heard repeated several times. Is if you go to the BBC and say we are making a period piece and the period is nineteen eleven, mm-hmm. they will do everything in their power to make it as authentic as possible. You oh, have yeah the most beautiful set you'll have everything period correct but if you say i'm doing something set in space here 25 25 you will get a white corridor with some hexagon uh, mm. patterned uh, wallpaper and that's it <laughs> yeah so you're always going to get a, better, a a good historical production out of the bbc because that's what they do mm-hmm. that is their bread and butter and that shows in this episode as much as it does in any other mm. the Servant of Sutek transforms into like the cadaverous version of uh, Marcus Scarman, and uh, Sutek sets him about trying to create a uh, Osiron war missile, which is basically sort of like a fiberglass pyramid. Um, the plan, obviously, to being to disrupt the power source of Sutek's containment, which is actually located on Mars, hence the Pyramid of Mars. The Doctor has a look at the space-time tunnel and switches on accidentally and uh, manages to knock it out, but... Uh, as often as the case, he gets rendered unconscious. Uh, as you do. As you do. I mean, it's a it's a good uh, bit by Tom Baker. Sorry, when he throws his hands up, it's up. There is yes. yeah, his goals up, and he just collapses like a wet sack of potatoes. So uh, throughout the episode, you sort of get uh, a bit of back and forth with like the poacher trying to avoid the the mummies after he uh, takes a shot at uh, the enslaved Scarman. Uh, which is actually quite a good uh, effect when he, he shoots at him. It's sort of like uh, you see the the bullet hit, and uh, then the, the smoke gets reversed into his body, and he sort of turns around. I mean, you can yes. sort of like, tell it uh, it's been filmed and then played backwards. Which, by the way, he's sort of, the scarman walks to the window. You know, it's uh, that. It's a really it's it's a very effective bit of business. I think mm. it. Although you know, again, we're cynical. 21st century eyes you're looking at that and going oh that's a bit of a ropey effect but i mean after an episode you're kind of in if you're if you've got this far you're invested mm-hmm. so you're gonna go with these effects or you're not and for me that's not a deal breaker but no. um you know i'm perfectly happy to go with effects like that but um you know because that's the best they could do at the time mm-hmm. now so sort of the real highlight of uh, part two is uh when the doctor sarah and Lawrence escape into the TARDIS. And uh, yes. Sarah goes, oh, no, well, you know, why can't we just get out of here? And it's just, this is, I think this is probably where, maybe it's where the seeds of the things you get in, like, the current Doctor Who, 
like sort of like fixed and malleable points in time and you know time can be rewritten this i think this is sort of like where it really sort of like got the seed from indeed the- yeah um i think that it's kind of uh, making it clear that what they're doing has consequence or mm. what they're doing is important i think it's all too easy to say in in previous adventures if they you could say well if they'd never turned up at all what difference would it have made what difference would it have made on you know the global scale or the local scale mm-hmm. and so by putting this scene in yeah. um although it proves insanely problematic in continuity terms but let's <laughs> let's not go into that because we're going to be here all night it gives everything a weight it says mm. what the doctor does and what we fail to do or the choices we make have consequence and really as well because this is really the whole raison d'etre of the doc why the doctor's out there in in the universe mm-hmm. he sees that there are there are things that need to be challenged where the Time Lords are happy to let things play out, mm-hmm. he sees that his intervention is needed. It's his yeah. job, he, he sees it as his job, to be out there fixing or confronting evil as he sees it. Mm-hmm. So, obviously, the, the stage said they have to go back and stop Sutek. So they retreat back to the Lodge where they uh, use the Marconi scope as a sort of jamming device for Sutek's power. Obviously, the the mummies find them, and you know the doctor gets knocked unconscious again, and yep. uh, Lawrence uh, gets knocked out, and uh, Sarah Jane tries to get, almost get throttled. I would say again, it's uh, if you're going to play a drinking game about Doctor Who, I mm. would put get throttled or gets knocked out on your list because um, it happens a bunch, and mm-hmm. this episode is no different. Yeah. So in part three, you get the bit uh, where the Doctor and Sarah, obviously they, they get out of it, duh. Of course. And uh, they try to destroy the missile. So they go and search for some uh, gelignite. Uh, Which everyone has, every good home has sitting around um, in their shed. Oh, every good purchase should anyway. Yes. Uh, and it's it, this is some, some great bits uh, with... Tom and Liz, where first of all they have to like deactivate like the, the little thing that's causing the uh, barrier that's that they've been sealed in the estate by this um, barrier created by Sutex technology to stop anybody from intervening and stopping his plans. And uh, the bit where the Doctor has to deactivate like the one of the generators is actually quite good because uh, you know he says uh, you know trying trying to disable this is like uh, trying to fix a watch with uh, a hammer and chisel. You know, wrong, wrong yeah. move. You'll never see it. Tell the time again. He says to Sarah, "Just uh, let me know if it starts to get hot." She says, "Don't worry. You'll hear me breaking the sound barrier." It's yeah. It's some of the great bits in like when they're in um, the poacher's shed, find the the gelic knight, and he uh, <laughs> she th- she throws the box to him, and he says, "You know, this when it starts to sweat, it gets really unstable. You know, good sneeze will set it off." He says, "Can you see any detonators?" And he says. Uh, no, I can't see any. Perhaps he sneezed. Just the look he gives her. He gives her such, it's <laughs> such like, um, I think if looks could kill, she'd be dead. Um, yeah, it's again, great. it's like, well, yeah, it's so great. And um, again, it's kind of, they act as each other's straight man, almost, mm-hmm. these two. There's a little, there's another little moment that'll be coming up uh, later on that sort of um, emphasises that. But again, like we said, just the chemistry between Tom and Liz is brilliant. And they, they, 
sort of bounce off each other so well. I think they've been working together long enough at this point that they sort of knew they knew each other well enough to be mm. able to throw out lines like that or deliver lines like that and know that the other one was going to be able to sell it. Yeah. After they reclaimed the child, they returned back to the lodge where uh, Marcus, uh, Lawrence rather, has been uh, stripping away the uh, one of the deactivated mummy's bandages to reveal the robot beneath because obviously it's Osirian technology. Unfortunately, Marcus has paid him a visit and despite his best efforts to try and make him remember his childhood in order to you know, return his humanity, it doesn't really take and he gets killed to death. Oh, it's so sad, this bit. Mm-hmm. Oh, it breaks my heart, man. It's like every time I'm like, oh, don't do that to Marcus. Oh, no, don't do that to Lawrence. Yeah. Bless him. It's, it's sad, but at the same point, I, I think this is sort of like one of those recurring tropes that, um, in science fiction. So, you know, you, you always sort of get a sense, you always like know from the get-go, that even though Lawrence is trying this, it, it's not going to stick, is it? No, it's not going to stick. You can, you can, you know, grab your sibling by the shoulders and say, do you remember when we played together, little Johnny? Mm-hmm. And you're still going to get murdered. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so in order to destroy the missile, the, uh, the doctor gets dressed up in the mummy bandages and look bizarre. It looks exactly like one. <laughs> yeah, funny that, isn't it? Yeah. So he goes to plant the Dragonite onto the uh, launch pad. And because they don't have detonators, uh, it's up to Sarah to use her previously unrevealed marksmanship <laughs> skills with a hunting rifle to uh, blow it up. How do um, you feel about that? About well, I, I wish that we'd heard about um, Sarah Jane's previous sniper training. Yeah. Um, she left that part out when she was saying about that she was a journalist. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's one of those things that the story. In order to move the story forward. Someone has to shoot that Jenny Knight. Mm-hmm. Um, it's he... a bit, and it's a bit weird. It's her. I would, yeah. Surely we could find someone else to do it who uh, could uh, conceivably shoot that gun. Mm. Um, I, so I'm sure that Sarah could shoot it, whether she could shoot it accurately and hit anything other than the broadside of a barn. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, I think Elizabeth Slayton had a kind of a bit of a problem about that purely because it was it was never mentioned before and it never came up again. Yeah, and when you think about it. Who else is going to take the shot? Because the doctor's not going to handle a gun. Um, no. And pretty much anyone else is, who is on their side has been killed He's to death. dead. Yeah. Yes. Very um, much dead. It, you know, it's one of those story things of obviously they put it in because it looked cool or, you know, it gave um, Sarah Jane something mm-hmm. to do. But when you sort of think about it for more than a nanosecond, it's kind of one of those things of you kind of wish they dropped a line in somewhere that said she you know, shotguns before and, you know, mm. was reasonably accurate with them or, you know, just have them find some sort of other alternative detonation method mm-hmm. in the in the hut, you know? Yeah. But it's one of those things if I you can you can let it kind of bug you and ruin the story or you can just go with it and enjoy the rest of it. It's yeah. one of those things, I think. Yeah, I, I don't think it distracts uh, detracts from the story any. It's just it's just like one of those little random weird things, you know. Indeed. Yeah. So now we sort of get to the part where the story really, for me, kicks in is when the Doctor yes. confronts Sutek because although Sarah managed to hit the uh, Jail Knight and actually detonate it, Sutek's holding back the detonation with his mental power. And so the Doctor has to travel to Sutek to distract him enough so that the uh, the explosion happens. And I just, the the bits where the Doctor confronts, I mean, let, let's, Reiterate, Zutek is completely paralysed because of Horus' power. 
He yes. can't he can't move beyond like sort of turning his head and looking around. But the fact that he's got these mental powers and is just a- capable of bringing the doctor to his knees. Yeah, again, with that, with that, the way it's one of those, it's, this design of Sutek is mm. so interesting and so cool looking. Mm. He looks in, incredibly evil and scary, and he looks huge and tall and imposing. Yeah. And then you match it with, with the Gabriel Wolf voice; yeah. it's just incredibly scary. And mm. when he effortlessly smacks the Doctor into being on his knees and causes him pain and all those sort of things. I mean, you don't really see the Doctor overwhelmed like that a no. lot. I mean, especially when it comes to things like mental powers because mm. the Doctor, in, in opposition to everyone else, is so usually so above everyone else. But to see how insignificant his mind is compared to some real big uh, scary entities like the O'Sirens, mm. um, it kind of makes you go, wow, okay, yeah. there's some big players out there, you know? Mm-hmm. And this is probably the part of the story that gets like quoted the most. Um, when yes, your evil is my good. Yeah, and uh, so Neil before the might of Sutek and things like that, and it's just brilliant. And of course, then you get Tom really sort of like ramping up the ham when uh, Sutek possesses him. Anyway, yes, comes back turns to, out to be levered. Yeah, he's got the eyes rolling and he's crossing yes. his arms, and Sutek is supreme. It's, yes. like, it's just <laughs> awesome. Under the control of Sutek, the Doctor, Scarman and Terry, who's been captured, head to Mars to deactivate the pyramid from there. Um, so how do you feel about all the sort of puzzles that uh, puzzles and traps that uh, were set to guard it's the kind of It's kind of one of those things of you almost wish that that had been more of the story, mm. that maybe... They got up to Mars earlier and maybe had an episode of them trying to move through these traps. Like, yeah. um, you know, again, one of those old tropes of uh, going into the, the pyramid and trying to get past all the booby traps to get to the treasure. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I, I almost wish there was more of it. Also, you sort of get um, Sarah Jane's uh, sudden, another bit of sudden knowledge of tribophysics, mm-hmm. um, which is like, okay, <laughs> when did you learn about that? Um, so... It, but again, it's one of those things of because it's so much fun to watch Tom and Liz work together. Mm-hmm. You, you kind of you, you enjoy it. I enjoy it so much that I wish there was more of it, and you know there, that was more of the story is going through all these different puzzles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean the the one with the two the two guardians. You know, one's programmed to tell the truth, one's programmed. I mean, that's yeah. an ancient, ancient yes. like puzzle. But I, I I have to be honest. Yeah, it's it's does get used a lot but it, it's always like a good one so like a good so thinker um because it, it, it's always good because the doctor is is about talking and about mm-hmm. logic and about discussion so to have a puzzle that requires all of those things in order to pass it yeah it's it's brilliant for for the doctor because that this is what he does this is yeah. his um this is his raison d'etre right here. So mm-hmm. to have a logic puzzle like that is really nifty and it's a really good choice. Yeah. So ultimately, uh, Scarman and one of the remaining mummies get to the Eye of Horus and it, it's it's great. It's always great when um, Sutek like, really like pushes his power through into Scarman and he, tra- and he transforms into the jackal head and like, blows it up. You know, it, that that was quite a creepy bit for me always. Yes, and, um, yes. You know the bits where he, he reverts back into Scar and he goes, "I'm free, free, and just, poof. yeah." Of course, obviously, 
with Suicide being freed, you know, it all, all seems lost, but then it's sort of the bulkhead doors, like a sort of like a final sort of failsafe by Horus allows like a direct passage back to the TARDIS for the Doctor and Sarah. Um, so they race back into the Priory and uh, the Doctor pulls out a piece of the TARDIS console to wire up to the, the time tunnel and he sort of sets it so those two techs travelling down it but he can't reach the exit. He sort, of, he sort of messes it with it so he's constantly stuck in that tunnel and just like, go, you know, just sends him forward several thousand years to his death. Yes, it effectively ages him to death, which mm-hmm. is, um, again, if we're talking tropes, um, there's kind of nothing more tropey than the Doctor via a, a sort of mad lash-up of stuff from the TARDIS mm-hmm. and some string and some duct tape and yeah. some other bits he found laying around, manages to sort of bod a thing together which defeats the baddie, which mm-hmm. we defeat by not directly killing them, just making them age to death or yeah. turn to dust or explode. Yeah, the, the, what I always liked about that bit was sort of the callback to like the radio signals from Mars. It, they had like a two-minute you know, window to actually stop Sutek altogether mm. because that's the amount of time it takes for the signal to go from Mars to Earth and to free him. Which I thought was always like a nice little bit, you know. It's it's sort of a nick of, like nick of time situation, but it, it's sort of it it does work, you know. It's it it makes sense in the context. Oh, absolutely! And also, one of the most infamous uh, bloopers in Doctor Who history occurs here, <laughs> uh, what is now lovingly called the Hand of Sutek, is that it, it took. And you know what? It it wasn't until someone pointed out to me that I noticed it. Yeah. Um, it was it if you've never seen it basically when Sutek stands up out of his chair there's a, a useful little uh, there's a little person who's obviously <laughs> sitting behind it one of the production crew who sees that the cushion that he's sitting on is about to fall off and so reaches out and grabs it um so you can see a, a naked hand come and put the move the cushion back onto the chair mm-hmm. um so like i say it's one of those infamous bloopers uh, there's a couple of other ones there's one in um of shock and things like that which yeah. have passed into doctor who lore mm-hmm. but you know it's one of those things of it, it's lovely and i like that they've left it in yeah. that they have there hasn't been a there hasn't been a move to digitally paint out his hand or something like that in a remastered thing at the moment um because like i say i I must have watched this episode half a dozen times before someone pointed out to me yeah i i I didn't i mean even when i was watching the dvd with the production notes up and it mentions the the hand i i still took me a few goes to actually spot it because i'm I'm too busy watching sutek yeah, because it's one of those things of your eye is following Sutek and mm-hmm. the they, the blooper happens over in the right-hand side of the screen. So you're not looking at that. You're looking at Sutek go across the room. Mm-hmm. Overall, how, how do you find this story? I absolutely adore this story. Mm-hmm. Um, it's by no means perfect. No. Um, it's, I think episode four is a bit slow. I say I, I would have liked more of the stuff, the business on Mars. I really like all that kind of weird mm. dumb show stuff as well. The Doctor and Sarah Jane do because there's that little Stooges reference where they come in and they turn yeah. around and go back out of the the, the room and things yeah. like that. Um, you know, because I just love watching Liz and Tom together mm-hmm. on screen. Any any of that just is is great to me. So I really enjoy all that stuff. So I wish there was more of it. I wish that there was more of that in the episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, but overall, although it's flawed, yeah. um, it is—it's just such a, a lovely 
bit of business. And um, I love all the gothic stuff. I really mm. like gothy Doctor Who. So, yeah, it's one of my favourite episodes or favourite serials of all time, full stop. Yeah, I mean, it's... The Hamaharu influences, again, are just, like, ten to the dozen. I mean, you've got, like, the glowing ring and sort of the, the, the mummies and, uh, and everything like that. It's, it's brilliant. And um, we actually forgot to mention uh, the death of the uh, the poacher, bless him. The poacher, yes, the poacher death, being crushed to death by some uh, 46 quintuple Ds. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the original death by motorboating. <laughs> oh! <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, honestly, like I said at the top of the show, this is probably, this is definitely my favourite Tom Baker story and probably one of my top five easily favorite yeah i think stories yeah it's it's i think it's easy in my top five Mm -hmm. um because i did i did uh, do a i did do a list on my blog some time ago um and i think this is possibly my number three behind uh, genesis and uh, the brain of morbius which is another kind of very gothy over the top big scary baddie story well it's frankenstein it's frankenstein Frankenstein. yeah it is yeah but Victor from Frankenstein didn't call someone a chicken-headed biological disaster. No, probably not. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it really, and as well, just uh, just on a personal level, it's one of these things that I love all this kind of ancient alien stuff. It really, although I don't, it's not a theory I take. I subscribe to. Um, mm. I think it's it's one of those things that I always enjoy reading about, and if there's any sort of story about it, I'm all about it. So. Um, it's one of those things that Doctor Who, Doctor Who does so well, even though, you know, when we talked uh, in our last episode about um, uh, Silver Nemesis effectively being a, 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 a sort of a redo of Members of the Daleks, mm. I feel like this is their version of the demons. Mm. Because, I mean, you've got all those elements of ancient gods yeah. and cults and, you know, even down to the energy shield covering... Mm-hmm. The area, but I think they do it in such a way that you, unless you really don't think about it, yeah, unless you really think about it, you don't necessarily notice it because the kind yes. of sort of like tried and true Doctor Who tropes in, in and of themselves. Oh yes, indeed. But I mean, I think as well, this is kind of the ultimate distillation of all the Doctor Who tropes into mm. one story. You get so many things that are so familiar from other episodes, kind of all in one. Again, we've got the ancient gods influencing Earth. Mm-hmm. You've got things in the TARDIS, you've got things, you've got this whole thing of if we don't stop him, this has got terrible consequences for Earth. Mm-hmm. You've got the Doctor dropping names left and right, like Mary Antoinette, and, <laughs> uh, you know, that he was involved in the Great Fire of London. Yeah. Um, well, not yet anyway. Not yet anyway, we'll see that uh, later. You get only the second mention of Gallifrey and the whole thing of these temporal coordinates. That's um, Yeah, uh, did I mention that about the, the TARDIS being penetrated by something scary yeah so basically all of those all of those ideas that doctor who does so well are Mm. kind of all distilled into this one episode yeah and it i think that's why it sort of acquired its reputation of as a good starter episode like if um if i was trying to get someone into classic who Mm -hmm. what would i show them and i think that this is probably on the list along with things like city of death Mm -hmm. as kind of if you don't like this you ain't gonna like it yeah, I, I I agree. So, if you had to give it a, a rating out of five, what would you give it? Oh, can I do point things? Because I'm thinking like a four point five. Mm, yeah, that's, that's fine. I, I would just as I would equally give it a four point five childish stratagems out of five. Yes. 
I like that. That's great. Uh, yeah. it's, it, that, I say that's. Um, I think maybe that's why. I'm not sure why this episode is has kind of become the go-to sort of quote mine of um, yeah. Doctor Who fandom. You know the whole the amount of you know my your evil is my good and brings Sutex gift of death to all humans and oh, you no. know I've I've you know I've emailed friends like when we're going around and you know I bring Emma's <laughs> gift of cakes to this party and things like that you know it's <laughs> it's one of those <laughs> uh, yes I mean we, we could just like repeat all sorts that's all all we can say is you know watch it just watch it if you if you listen it. to it if you've just listened to this and had it entirely ruined and not watched it, then you're naughty. Slap yourself in the wrist through mm. the internet like that. Yes. But so if you've listened to this trying to be convinced, um, hopefully that our, our love of this story has convinced you to go and give it a try. If you're, say, again, if you're a class, if you're a person who's only come to the series post-05, this is the sort of story is, is the thing that, um, you know, if you, if you watch this and you think, nah, I didn't really enjoy that, Maybe the classic series isn't for you, really, because this is this is the bread and butter of classic era. This is all the tropes, all the little things, all the way the way it's written, the effects, everything that you see here is all of that distilled into one episode. Absolutely, I, I, I couldn't agree more. You may as well just end the show here. <laughs> all right then. Okay, good. I'll go and put the kettle on, shall I? <laughs> yeah, go on. Then. <laughs> He brings simply syndicated gifts of podcasts to all humanity. Hey! <laughs> let's get out of here. Yeah, let's go. We're getting this. Let's go. Yeah. We have some more wandering through the fourth dimension to do. Indeed. Well, that's all for this show. Thank you very much, Emma. Thank you, Mike. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Greatest Show in the Galaxy is produced by Emma Foster and Michael Mole for the Simply Syndicated 21st Century Media Network. Be sure to check out our Simply Syndicated sister podcasts, including Movies You Should See, Take It or Leave It, For Those About to Rock, Remote Patrol, Atomic Review War 9000, Starbase 66 and Nerd Hurdles. If you like what you hear, you can contact us at greatestshow at simplysyndicated.com or you can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash greatestshowpodcast or on Twitter at greatestshowpod. 